ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we take one of the closer looks you'll ever read or hear into the question of irreducible complexity. What kind of argument is it really, and what is its place in the design argument? Naturally, the one doing the explaining is Michael Behe, the Lehigh University biochemist who originated the idea of irreducible complexity in his 1995 book, Darwin's Black Box. He's here answering a series of questions from host Pat Flynn on Flynn's Philosophy for the People podcast. This is the first in a series of three podcasts from Behe and Flynn on the topic, Answering the Best Objections to Irreducible Complexity and Intelligent Design. Okay, everybody, we are back once again with Dr. Michael Behe, a man who really needs no introduction on this show anymore. This is probably the fourth or fifth appearance, and we're going to talk about his theory of irreducible complexity and intelligent design, and this will be a special episode, and this will be an episode for those of you who've been following along with Dr. Behe's work and the previous conversations and debates we've had, because we're going to be building upon a lot of those conversations and the work that uh, Dr. Behe has done. Uh, I was I was kind of joking around with uh, Dr. Behe backstage that we must have done a fairly good job with addressing some of the common uh, objections to intelligent design and irreducible complexity, because I kind of get these, they're called like the, the reading list objections, right? What's well, like, oh, you guys might have refuted Miller and these other guys, but what about, what about this guy? What about the other guy? And then they just throw the whole reading, the reading list to you. And Hey, you know, fair enough. Uh, And we have to be realistic here is uh, you can do what you can do, you know, both on a podcast and in print and everybody's intellectual duty is to try and find, Hey, what are the, what are the best objections and try and offer the best response to that. But even the best person, especially with somebody like you, Mike, whose, whose work was and is quite explosive, right? It, It generated, a lot of heat, a lot of controversy. There's just so much coming in that, uh, yeah, a principle of charity should be kept in mind that if, you know, you don't respond to, you know, you only respond to one million people and not one million and one that, you know, okay. Right. <laughs> right. We got a pretty good, pretty good batting average. I don't know. Do you want to say something about that in general, about just uh, how you, how, especially even in your work, how you decide which objections to include in your, in your publications and, and stuff like well, that? Well, usually I, I include either the most popular ones at the time or the ones I think that are the most interesting. And unfortunately, most of those cropped up. I, I wrote my first book, Darren's Black Box, in 1996. Mm-hmm. Most of those cropped up within the first few years, and I, I wrote a couple articles and stuff to address them. And then nobody seems to have read those, <laughs> those replies. I, and yeah. I keep answering the same objections over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, people who should know better, my subsequent books, my two subsequent books have been reviewed by, you know, Science Magazine and other places. And they shamefacedly, or something like that, uh, boldfacedly ignore everything I've ever said before and and bring up pretty much the same objections that were raised in 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's frustrating, but I, I figured I'll just, you know, say as much as I can when I can and re- repeat the same objections. But I can't make people uh, take note of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a good statement. You know, um, 
it, there's nothing inherently wrong if you know, especially on when people are doing brief exchanges on social media and stuff like that. You just it's just not a good format to get into, you know, heavyweight debates. That's why you write books and engage in academic articles, yeah. right? To to do, I guess, the reading list objection. But I would suggest to people at least acknowledge that you've read the list on the other side, right? And see if the yeah. stuff that that you're posting has been responded to, and and you know, those acknowledgments can can be helpful. So, anyways, we've got a lot to cover today. We're going to work through uh, different sorts of objections, objections that I think are the most, and you think are kind of the most interesting. Uh, they're more advanced objections, uh, I think. Um, and in many ways, Dr. Behe, I think that these objections are quite complementary to your project because what we'll see as we move through here is there's, uh, I, for the life of me, I cannot find any really good scientific objections to your view. Um, and that that to me seems to be like, uh, where it almost matters most. And a lot of the philosophical objections we're going to con consider are meta level in the sense that they're not, they're not exactly specific to your argument, right? They're kind of more general uh, ways of thinking about argumentation and hypothesis testing and worldview comparison and philosophy of religion. So if they're in a sense, like if they're a problem for you, they're sort of a problem for everybody. Type yeah, of objection, yeah. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the way it struck me too. I'm no philosopher. Your audience should know. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, many of the philosophical objections strike scientists as you know quibbling about words and 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 stuff. On the other hand, the scientific objections, you know, th those have the ability or the potential, at least, to shoot down an argument right away, an argument like mine, which says that, you know, unintelligent, undirected processes can't make certain sorts of biological systems. And all a scientist has to do is say, didn't you see that paper over there where they did exactly that? Or I grew these bacteria over here and they, they made this thing right here. But not only have they stood up the um, arguments I made in Darwin's Black Box in 1996, but as I've tried to show over the decades, they've gotten worse for the other side because of the problem of, especially the problem of devolution that I, that I highlighted in my last book in 2019. That yeah. is Darwinian processes not only have a tough time building things, they are strongly degradative. They will throw things out left and right if it gives a slight evolutionary advantage. You know, I hate to have you do this because I've asked this every time you've been on the show, but in case somebody is just hopping in real quick, would you mind giving the 30 seconds, uh, here's here's the sort of thrust of of my critique and, uh, and, and what uh, irreducible complexity is before we get into the objections? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Darwin, uh, of course, gave his uh, idea of, of evolution by random mutation and natural selection. He always insisted it had to improve gradually. That you start with something that's working and a change comes along and natural selection will select that and it'll improve it, improve it, improve it. And he said himself that he says, if it could be shown that there existed something that couldn't be put together by many small successive steps in a gradual fashion, then his idea wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Because if you see things being put together in big leaps and over rapid periods of time, then it looks like something other than chance is involved. So mm -hmm. he always insisted on that. Well, it turns out if you think about it, machines can't be put together like that because they have multiple parts that are needed for the machinery to work. And 
in my first book, Dar's Black Box, I used a mechanical mouse trap as an illustration of that. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that modern science, since the 1960s at least, has discovered that in the cell, the cell is run by literally machines made out of molecules. And I'm, I'm not, that's not my idea. It's, it's common in the literature. They have multiple parts. They use force. They direct the force at certain ways. And, and they're real machines. And just like machines in our everyday world, they can't be put together gradually. And so that's a big old problem for Darwin's idea of gradual evolution. Right, yeah. And, and I, told, I call that irreducible complexity, the, the need for multiple parts. Okay, and we're going to have some opportunities to clarify that as we as we move through our objections. All right, so the first one is one of these sort of higher level or lower level, I guess, objections or opportunities for clarification. And by the way, people want to know where I'm pulling these from. We'll, we will read some stuff directly at, at various points, but I'm looking at critiques made by people like uh, Graham Oppie and arguing about gods, uh, even friendly people who are theists like Alvin Plantigan, where the conflict really lies, and he's drawing upon Paul Draper. And then we're going to get into some uh, proposals by uh, various scientists uh, as well. But the, the first the first ones are actually coming more from uh, philosophers and, and philosophers of religion specifically. And uh, I'm going to generalize it and then we can get a little bit more uh, specific. But to situate the context, the objection or the question, and this is, uh, I'll focus on Plantinga here because he does a good job of kind of summarizing thoughts of, of Draper, adding his own, and then, and then being somewhat critical of ID but then also somewhat friendly. And the objection, the objection or question is this, is like, what kind of argument is, is Michael Behe making, right? Is it supposed to be a deductive argument where he has strictly eliminated, right, the possibility of a naturalistic process to account for irreducible complexity? And there, Planiga wants to, you know, kind of side with Draper and say, yeah, it doesn't, you know, it's, 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 it's not deductively airtight, and it might still be possible. Uh, it might still be prohibitively improbable, Planiga says, but it still might be possible. So it was like a, trying to put through an airductive, uh, an airtight deductive argument. I think Planiga and, and Draper would be critical on that if that's what you're trying to do. Uh, then, you know, maybe you think, and this is something that Oppie himself considers, that you're trying to make a probabilistic argument or you're trying to do inference to the best explanation or something like that, right? Which might be seen as a more modest project, but could still be quite substantive. Or this is what, uh, and I'm just trying to map out the territory here and then we'll, let, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hear it from the man himself. Uh, Plantinga says, maybe it's, maybe it's actually something like this. And this one is, is a little bit more subtle and I think it requires some background on Plantinga to understand. But I'm actually very sympathetic to this view. And I don't think they're necessarily incompatible. Not saying I'm sympathetic with Plantinga's criticisms per se, but I am sympathetic with his epistemology in general. So Plantinga's got this account where maybe what you're doing, and he says the same thing about about Paley, Doctor Behe, is you're not you're not uh, making a design argument. You're offering a design discourse. And what he means by that is it's not like we're we're inferring intelligent design when we come across these particular systems, right? Rather, we come across these systems and this belief is sort of naturally occasioned in us right we come across the watch in paley's example or the bacteria flagellum in yours and it's not like we're working through a series of premises and we have what plant planet would call the warrant transfer from the premises to you know give us warrant and occlusion rather it's rather more on the level of sort of how when i'm talking to you or i meet another person i, I just sort of naturally formed a belief that you're a minded entity like me right mm -hmm. and it's not something i infer to 
It's a belief that just sort of naturally occasioned to me under, under certain circumstances. And it's a belief that Planet Good Say is properly basic. Now, according to his theory of knowledge and epistemology, this belief is, is warranted, right? It's very reasonable to hold. It's justified assuming certain background conditions, right? That, that, that we have generally reliable cognitive faculties that are oriented towards truth, working in the appropriate environment. He's going to argue you actually need theism in the background to kind of support all that, right? And this is kind of planted as, I think, subtle but, but brilliant project. And what he wants to say in the complementary sense of, of your argument is like, if you read what you're doing like that, then he thinks what you are offering is really quite useful because it defeats any possible naturalistic de defeaters of design belief and adds support. He thinks it's a modest support to a theistic paradigm. So I actually really like that way of thinking about it, but I don't know if that's your way of thinking about it. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to clarify what is the argument? How do you think about it? And if, if you're familiar with, and I know you are familiar with Planet Good, do you think he gets any of it wrong? Mm -hmm. Okay, um, yeah, I don't look at it that way because I'm not a philosopher. I have a couple of fundamental ideas that might be best uh, to talk about. Um, the, let's see, the, the, the first is this, that we, you can look and you can find a person and talk to them and you think that they're a minded individual. So you can say, why do you think that? Suppose I came across a person who was standing on a corner smiling and I went up and says, hello, sir, do you have the time of day? And they would smile and you would say, well, okay, well, uh, don't you have a watch? And they would smile and they didn't do anything. Now I'm starting to wonder if they are a minded individual <laughs> and maybe they just kind of then kind of start to lean over and fall down mm -hmm. and maybe they were, you know, unconscious the whole time and just kind of propped up there and fell over. Mm -hmm. When I first approached him, I assumed he was a rational person just cause those kind of, he looks like a, a person and uh, most persons I meet are rational. Mm -hmm. But we make our decision about whether somebody is intelligent or not by what they do. And that is by the physical actions, whether they can speak words, whether they can put things together, when they can add up a sum of numbers. Mm -hmm. And I am uh, kind of uh, 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 following a, a Scottish philosopher named Thomas Reed in thinking this. He was mm -hmm. uh, in the 1700s and uh, he wrote about something he called the design hypothesis. Mm -hmm. He said that, how do we know that somebody has a mind or, uh, you know, we can't read minds. And the only way we can tell if somebody is intelligent and the degree of their intelligence is by what they do. If they can do an, uh, if they can sum two numbers, they're intelligent. If they can do calculus, they're more intelligent. If they sum two numbers, they're intelligent. They might be, they might be able to do calculus too, so they might be more intelligent than what we see. But the point is that we deduce intelligence, even this natural thing that Alvin Plantinga talked about of assuming that somebody else is a mind. We only do it because of what we see them able to do. In the same way, we can ask ourselves, how do we know that there was a mind behind some work? 
And uh, I, in my talks, I say that if you look in the dictionary, one of the senses of the word design is the purposeful arrangement of parts. When you see something, something where a number of different parts have been put together and you can see that it, there's a, a purpose for it, then we conclude that that was intelligently designed. One easy example is a book. If you come across a book, you can see that inks, uh, ink marks were arranged on a page in a way that you can read something and might have a profound message. It might be a Dr. Seuss book, whatever. You can tell that it was arranged by a mind because we can see the purposeful arrangement of parts. Parts were arranged for a purpose. And I have written that that is the way, the only way that we recognize the existence or the, the work of a mind. If you came across a mousetrap, if you were walking on, on a heath and your foot hit a mousetrap, say, uh, you would know that it was designed because you'd see how the pieces were arranged for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And we know that in our experience, only minds have purposes. And, and that, I think, uh, this might be something that Alvin Planiga is thinking, thinking about too, but mm -hmm. I think our ability to recognize the existence of other minds is, in fact, a properly basic fundamental aspect of rationality. Mm -hmm. uh, we ourselves have purposes. We can see purposes in other things. And if we didn't do it ourselves, we attribute a purpose to some other mind. Okay. Okay. That's, that's my, that's my spiel on how we recognize design. So what is this ar argument about design in life or design in biology? Mm -hmm. It has been attributed that the kind of argument has, has, it has been attributed to a number of forms. It's called a inference, the best explanation an analogy, uh, other things. In my own view, it is an inductive argument. An inductive argument, it says, the form is kind of like this. Whenever we see parts that have been arranged for a purpose, we have always discovered that there was a mind behind their arrangement. So if we come across a book, we come across a mousetrap, we find that events have, a, have been arranged so that a surprise party can happen for somebody's birthday. Whenever we see parts, in very generally taken, that have been arranged in relationship to each other for a purpose, we recognize a mind behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, unexpectedly, when science has looked at the very foundation of life, we see the purposeful arrangement of parts everywhere, pretty much everywhere, in bacterial flagella, in DNA, in the molecular machines of the cell, lots of places. Since we have no other explanation for that, Darwinian pretensions notwithstanding, then we are justified in concluding that that too uh, was caused by a mind. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about this is that inductive reasoning 
conjoined with physical evidence, that is the structures of these systems, is classic scientific reasoning. That's how science proceeds, by gathering evidence, by inductively reasoning from experiments and, and uh, such to conclusions. And mm -hmm. so that's how I how I view the argument. Right. And that's that's important, because if you're if you're casting it in those terms and then somebody wants to come around and um, they can certainly you know challenge the steps in your argument. And we'll get to that here in a minute. Right. But uh, um it wouldn't be it wouldn't be much help, I think, or, or much use if somebody just takes like a human skepticism towards induction, right? Because that isn't just a problem for you, right? That's going to be a problem right. for everybody, science, right? For yeah. <laughs> yeah, for science. Oh, I, well, I think there's good answers to that, but that 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 would just be kind of. If mm -hmm. my point is, if that is the sort of response that somebody gave to your argument at that point, then I, I think you can just you can go pop the bottle of champagne, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's right. So, but yeah, lots of people, uh, for some reason, uh, matter of fact, this uh, philosopher, Graham Oppie, uh, uh, he casts William Paley's argument as a inference of the best explanation or uh, an analogy and goes through a number of things. Uh, and um, and you know, Elliot Sober thinks it's a, uh, a likelihood argument and but heck i just see it as a straightforward induction i don't see why one has to go to these you know more um involved uh forms of argumentation sure sure yeah all right that, that's that's interesting because uh that is you know if you go through uh oppie's the relevant uh reference people want is, is arguing gods and we'll come back to oppie here in a minute because he's got kind of more specific you know uh uh, points of attack uh, on mm -hmm. yours as well. So that's clarifying. That's helpful. I also do want to just keep Planiga's account in the background for people because I actually think Planiga's, I, I think he's right on that. I don't think they're incompatible, right? I do think the design belief is something that's naturally occasioned us and you're you're strongly warranted in that. And And you can look at your work as sort of deflecting or defeating um, anything that might be used to defeat that belief and that's sort of Planiga's subtle analysis of it. So I think he, even though he might be, uh, and he, does, yeah, maybe we could focus on sober here for a minute. I guess you sort of already just responded to that by clarifying your argument, but, but Planiga wants to say, and again, this is sort of a more general issue, but I think it's worth speaking a little bit about. And, um, I can do a separate episode on this because again, it's not just specific to, to your, uh, ap uh apologetic here, Dr. Behe. Uh, it's, it says something like this, Hey, if, if we cast it as a likelihood argument, uh, the problem is, um, these critics will say is we don't, we don't really have any reason to think that God would create structures like this. And if we don't have any reason to think that God would, uh, create structures like this, then it seems like God is no more predictively successful, um, than uh, any sort of uh, non-God hypothesis uh, in naturalism, and I, I, I want to say that's just that's just wrong, right? I think when you <laughs> when you have classical theism understood, I mean the tradition of classical theism and the commitments that come along with it of understanding the nature of God and the diffusiveness of goodness and being, all you know what those thinkers tend to think is that 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 it's almost inevitable that God will create beings like mm -hmm. us right mm -hmm. uh and, and the, the worry that they have is why isn't creation necessary rather than contingent right mm -hmm. this is known as the diffusiveness principle and you know swinburne let me just read a, a quick uh a quote here because i think swinburne does a nice job on this just to kind of to where i think that they go wrong that once you understand that the god hypothesis entails a being of pure perfection that is omnipotent and omniscient 
and you tie that into other, I think, uh, important understandings in philosophy, like moral motivation theory, God would necessarily understand the goodness of beings like us, right? And have the sort of motive uh, to create beings like us, which Swinburne talks about. So Swinburne actually tries to say, he thinks it's at least 50% likely that God <laughs> will create beings. And, and he's uh -huh. like, look, you can't assign exact numerical values to it. But if beings like us demand these sort of prior physical structures, then of course, you're going to have that likelihood or expectation flowing from God as well. But here's another point I want to make about it. Even if you thought that the likelihood that God would create beings like us is low, 1%, that, that, that doesn't matter because what matters is the ratio. What's the likelihood that you'll get us from a naturalistic hypothesis? And if that's point zero 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 whatever, yeah. right? It's yeah. the ratio that matters. So even though you're not casting your argument in that light, I would just reject what Planiga and, and Sober are saying there. I think you can absolutely get the expectation from the theistic side that you cannot get from the naturalistic mm. side. I don't know if you want to comment on that anymore. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I just should say for listeners that uh, this argument of, of Elliot Sober's first and then echoed by other folks, including Alvin Planiga, is that uh, sure, you not only have to show that something looks designed, you, you have to say that a designer had the desire to make such a thing. And he says, how do we know that a designer would want to make a bacterial flagellum? So therefore we cannot conclude that it was, it was made by, uh, on purpose uh, by an intelligent agent. And try as I might, and as smart as I think Elliot Sober and Alvin Plantinga are, I see absolutely no force whatsoever in such an argument. Because when you say that uh, something, uh, that there was a designer, you, you, you mean that you, there exists a being who had the power and, and the, had, the, uh, had the ability to make something. Mm -hmm. And the ability to make something includes the desire to make it or the time to make it or, or whatever. Um, Suppose you were in South Dakota and you walked around a bend in a road and you saw Mount Rushmore there and you were with a friend and you, you said, wow, look, you know, I wonder who carved that. And the friend says, what do you mean who carved it? You know, how do you know that there would be a, somebody would want to make something like that? Uh, and the implication is if you you don't know if somebody would want to make something like that, then you'd have to conclude it was a it was a chance occurrence or a natural occurrence. And that's, that's kind of dumb. Uh, <laughs> well, quite frankly, it is. Right. But, uh, but can I give another example there, right? This is something I have in, in one of my other articles. Yeah. I'll, I'll link it afterwards, right? Imagine that you're coming in. I'm borrowing some ideas here from other philosophers, including uh, Tim McGrew, who I think would, would challenge this uh, 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 critique of, of Sobers as well, right? Is that yeah. you come, you come across a cabin in the woods and it, maybe it looks abandoned from the outside. It's the doors hanging off and there's plant life growing all over it, right? But then you go inside and you discover that there's a cup of hot steeping tea in there, right? Well, what do you what do you immediately come to believe? You come to believe this, this isn't abandoned at all, right? There's there's somebody in this cabin, right? It'd be kind of ridiculous to think that you you would have to say, uh, well, you can't, you know, come to that belief reasonably and responsibly unless you had some reason to think that that person would want a cup of hot tea, right? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, like, even if that, even if the likelihood's low, what's the likelihood that any one person in a cabin would want a cup of Earl Grey tea? It probably is low, right? It doesn't matter. It's the ratio 
that you know, even if you can't sign exact numerical values, that the chances of that cup of tea being there are far, 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 far higher if there is somebody occupying that cabin than if than if if not, if it's abandoned. So I would say just switch those relevant things around to the to the case you're making. And I think it kind of clears away that objection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree completely. It's, uh, I, uh, what, when I go around giving talks, one slide I show is of a cartoon uh, from the far side, which is uh, a wonderful cartoon series, weird stuff. And it shows a troop of jungle explorers and the lead explorer has been strung up by a vine and there are these bamboo shafts kind of skewering him and he's dead and clearly he's caught in a trap and one of the other explorers turns to somebody else and says that's why I never walk in front and the thing is that it's made of all natural materials but the humor of the cartoon depends on the reader recognizing that this was designed this was a trap you don't have to go and know anything extraneous about the possible designer. Could have been a space alien, for all I know. They might be on another planet. Uh, could have been, you know, a native of the jungle. But you're certain that this that this was that, that this was a trap because you see the purpose behind the arrangement of the of the parts. Yeah. So I, I hope people can appreciate now what I meant by some of these are just more higher level or, or lower level uh, philosophical objections. But these are these are important uh, to consider, and I'm glad we're considering them. That was Dr. Michael Behe interviewed by Pat Flynn. The first part of three on the topic answering the best objections to irreducible complexity and intelligent design. We say thanks to Pat Flynn and his Philosophy for the People podcast for permission to use this audio. Until next time for ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.